Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners are advised this episode contains the names of people who have died. Welcome to Australia on this day. My name's Michael Adams and today we're going back to Thursday the 16th of August 1928. That was the day that a Central Australian police constable, William George Murray, led a party that raided an Aboriginal camp and killed five people in an official response to the murder of a white dingo hunter just over a week earlier. What followed was a two-month murder spree, the last sanctioned mass killings of Indigenous people in Australian history. While the official death toll was 31, modern historians put that figure far higher, saying as many as 170 people died in what became collectively known as the Coniston Massacres. A little later in this episode, I'll be talking to historian Dr. Robin Smith, who's worked to map this and other mass killings of Aboriginal people in the Northern Territory for the University of Newcastle's Massacre Map Project. On the 14th of August 1928, a part Aboriginal stockman named Alex Wilson found the body of a 61-year-old dingo trapper named Fred Brooks. Old Fred had been murdered and stuffed into a rabbit hole on the Coniston Station, some 240 miles northwest of Alice Springs, in what was then the territory called Central Australia. According to two young Aboriginal children who'd been working with Fred, he'd been killed by an Aboriginal man named Japanunga, known to the whites by his nickname Bullfrog, who'd been acting with his wife, Marangadi, his uncle Paderka, and several other Aboriginal men. The motive? The accepted version is that Fred and Bullfrog had agreed on a price for Marangadi's domestic and or sexual services, and that Bullfrog had killed Fred when he didn't pay up. Under traditional Aboriginal law, Bullfrog was entitled to physically punish Fred, but not to kill him. So Bullfrog and Paderka were banished. Under white man's law, Bullfrog was an alleged murderer. Under white man's law, he was to be apprehended, charged and tried in court. As to who, if anyone, had helped him or helped cover up the murder, that should have been determined by the usual process of questioning other suspects. The Government Administrator of Central Australia, Alice Springs-based Mr John Kaywood, sent Constable William George Murray, a hard-nosed Gallipoli veteran and experienced bush policeman, to chase down the killers. Mr Kaywood refused Constable Murray police backup, but authorised him to take civilian help as needed and gave him a, quote, free hand to deal with the Aborigines. Tensions were high in Central Australia at this time. A long and terrible drought had left white pastoralists and Aboriginal people increasingly competing for resources, particularly waterholes used by stock on stations that tribes had returned to in these dry conditions. Aborigines had also been spearing cattle for food, and white settlers were increasingly fearful that the natives weren't just restless, but getting rebellious. Now, a white man had been murdered. 
At Coniston Station, after questioning the Aboriginal children who'd been working for Fred Brooks, Constable Murray came up with a list of 20 Aboriginal men supposedly involved in the murder. It's worth noting that this roll call of suspects, if it ever existed, was never produced, nor would the names be made public. Constable Murray organised a posse that comprised Coniston station owner Randall Stafford, Alex Wilson, the part Aboriginal stockman who'd found Fred Brooks, two white stockmen and three Aborigines, including a tracker named Paddy, who spoke the Aboriginal language Aranda but not Walpuri, and another tracker called Major, who spoke both languages but spoke little English. On the 15th of August, two Aboriginal men, Padigar and Wollongar, approached Coniston station to trade dingo skins. Both had been in the area where Fred Brooks had been killed and through mistranslation, Constable Murray came to believe that Wollongar was actually Bullfrog's uncle, Paderka. An altercation occurred as Constable Murray tried to chain the men and the policeman shot and badly wounded Wollongar and Randall Stafford delivered a savage kick to this Aboriginal man's ribs. Instead of tending to Wollongar's wounds, Constable Murray saw to it that he spent the night chained to a tree. The next morning, when Constable Murray's party rode out from Coniston Station, they took Padigar and the bleeding Wollongar with them, hobbled by chains and walking through the rough terrain behind the horses. The party approached an Aboriginal waterhole camp four miles west of where Fred had been found on the afternoon of the 16th of August, 1928. The mounted horsemen spread out over a 500-yard line through the scrub, and then Constable Murray charged into the camp at a gallop. He charged in among 23 surprised and terrified Aboriginal people, most of whom were women and children. Pulling his horse up, Constable Murray brandished his revolver and shouted. One old man held a yam stick and refused to be intimidated. Constable Murray dismounted, confronted and grabbed this man, and that caused other Aboriginal men to rush to his defence, brandishing boomerangs and spears. Constable Murray's men rode in and saw their boss surrounded by natives. They started shooting and the Aborigines scattered. When the firing stopped, three Aboriginal men and an Aboriginal woman lay dead. Another Indigenous woman was dying from a bullet wound to the groin. In his 1984 book, The Killing Times, author John Cribben wrote, A small girl about five years old stood shivering violently beside her, both fists clenched to her mouth. The mother's staring eyes were on her as life ebbed away. One of the dead women was Bullfrog's wife, which Constable Murray saw as justification for actions carried out under his command. The following day, the party, which was now minus Randall Stafford, who'd been appalled by the murders but not appalled enough to report them, continued on to Cockatoo Creek. In addition to Padigar and Wollongar, Constable Murray now had three other prisoners, and they were young Aboriginal boys who'd been beaten and chained. That night, Constable Murray and his tracker Paddy cornered four Aboriginal people, two men, two women, and as Paddy was chaining the older man, the younger one ran. Constable Murray fired two shots with his revolver, but missed. Paddy raised his rifle to his shoulder, shot the Aboriginal man in the back and killed him. The other three Aboriginal prisoners were taken back to camp and interrogated to no avail. With news spreading that a white man's posse was on a killing spree, Aboriginal people laid low or fled into the desert far from waterholes, meaning they risked death from dehydration and starvation. 
After leaving Padigar, Wollongar and one of the boys back at Coniston Station, Constable Murray and his posse on the 22nd of August reached Six Mile Soak, and at dusk they circled an Aboriginal camp of some 30 people, again mostly women and children. They raided in similar circumstances, shooting six men who were defending the camp. Three of these men died immediately, and three others were taken prisoner. Two of these Aboriginal men died of their wounds overnight. The other gunshot prisoner died the next day, after being force-marched in chains by Paddy for 10 miles. Throughout the rest of August, Constable Murray's party would each day break up into smaller groups to search out waterholes. According to the Killing Times, the landscape rang out with gunshots, though no attempt was made to record what had happened and who had been killed and wounded. For all of this punitive action, Constable Murray got himself one murder suspect, a man named Akirkra. Back at Coniston, one of his other suspects, Wollongar, died of his wounds after two weeks of suffering. So it was on the 1st of September that Constable Murray arrived back in Alice Springs with just two prisoners, Padigar and Akirkra. Nevertheless, Constable Murray was received as a white hero for killing 17 Aborigines, which was the official tally he submitted to John Caywood, which the Central Australia Administrator then approvingly forwarded to the Federal Government in Canberra. In his report, Constable Murray claimed that every single dead Aborigine had been implicated in the murder of Fred Brooks. The disquieting circumstances surrounding the killings made the newspapers in the capital cities, and thanks to the agitation of two missionaries, there would be increasing demands in Australia and in England for an inquiry. By this time, though, Constable Murray was again out hunting Aboriginal people. This time, it was to avenge William Nugget Morton. Nugget was a hulking white pastoralist who'd come to Walpuri Territory with his cattle in 1924. He was infamous in general for his savage treatment of Aboriginal people and infamous in particular for his rape of Aboriginal women. On the 27th of August, he'd been savagely attacked by 15 Aboriginal men. In the fight, Nugget was badly beaten, but he managed to shoot dead two of his attackers, causing the rest to flee, and this saved his life. It took Nugget nearly a month to recover, and now he was ready for revenge. On the 24th of September, he, Constable Murray, Alex Wilson, and another part Aboriginal man rode out. For the next three weeks, they murdered Aboriginal people at will. They'd admit to killing 14, four at Tomahawk Waterhole, two at Circle Well, and another eight on the Hanson River. But in the 1970s and early 1980s, Aboriginal people who'd lived through these events told of other massacres, including one at Dingo Hole, where Constable Murray and Nugget killed 15 people, including 11 women and children. In all, survivors said, Constable Murray and Nugget's punitive expedition killed 100 people. And that was in addition to the 70 people killed in the original Fred Brooks reprisal spree. It was mid-October 1928 before Constable Murray and Nugget finished their murderous rampage. When Constable Murray got back to Alice Springs shortly afterwards, he was to escort Padigar and Akirkra to Darwin so they could be tried. During the trial, Constable Murray repeatedly justified killing Aboriginal people, even though he wasn't on trial. He made such a big deal of it that he made himself a target for the judge. 
and that led to this exchange between Constable Murray and his honour, Judge Mallam. Judge Mallam asked, Constable Murray, was it really necessary to shoot to kill in every case? Could you not have occasionally shot to wound? Constable Murray, no, Your Honour. What use is a wounded blackfellow a hundred miles from civilization? The judge asked, How many did you kill? Constable Murray, 17, Your Honour. That led the judge to muse, You mowed them down wholesale? It also led to Judge Mallam saying, quote, It appears impossible for all those bands of natives to be associated with the murder of Brooks. It looks as if they were shot down at different places just to teach them and other Aborigines a lesson. As for Padigar and Akirkara, it was obvious the evidence against them was being falsified and they were both acquitted of the murder of Fred Brooks. Newspapers, including the Sydney Morning Herald and the Times of London, called for an inquiry into the Coniston massacres, and Prime Minister Stanley Bruce announced that indeed one would be held. But the deck was stacked. The board was headed by Queensland Police Magistrate Mr A.H.O. Kelly, who was a Stanley Bruce political appointee. Also on the board, South Australian Police Inspector P.A. Giles and John Kaywood, the Alice Springs government official who'd given Constable Murray a free hand in the first place. Even before the inquiry had opened, John Kaywood had written this in an official correspondence, quote, I am firmly of the opinion that the result of the recent action by the police will have the right effect upon the natives. The inquiry heard evidence almost exclusively from the police side and it found that Constable Murray had acted properly and that in every instance, quote, the shooting was justified. The inquiry, which had also been empowered to look at conditions for Aborigines in Central Australia, found that there was no evidence of drought or lack of resources and that Aborigines had ample native food and water. As such, quote, no provocation has been given which could reasonably account for the depredations by the Aborigines and their attacks on white men in Central Australia. The inquiry found that responsibility for the tragedies lay with everyone except those who'd pulled the triggers. Marauding Aborigines, it found, were determined to wipe out white settlers. Misguided missionaries exacerbated problems by preaching equality, as did inexperienced settlers who foolishly and dangerously treated natives as equals. Aborigines, the board said, were becoming more ungovernable because there weren't enough police and imprisonment was no deterrent. Constable Murray, who'd failed to catch Bullfrog, who'd arrested two men subsequently found not guilty, who'd supervised the killing of, officially at least, 31 people, and who'd provided virtually no records of his actions, not even the names of the dead people, well, he wasn't censured for dereliction of duty at all, even in terms of basic police procedure. Instead, as the Adelaide Register News Pictorial put it, quote, he is the hero of Central Australia. He is the policeman of fiction, He rides alone and always gets his man. Earlier this week, I spoke to Dr. Robin Smith, who's worked to map Coniston and other mass killings of Aboriginal people in the Northern Territory for the University of Newcastle's Massacre Map Project. Robin, thanks for joining me. In terms of your work, what sort of uh, methods are you using? Are you... Is it oral history? Is it uh, newspaper records, official records, a combination of all of them? All of the above. And the criteria for meeting the definition of a massacre for the purposes of this 
project is uh, the deaths of uh, six or more Aboriginal people in one attack. Wow, that's a pretty high bar, actually, isn't it? Mm, yes, that's right, because there are, there are so many that I've come across where the official records will say five, four, yet the unofficial records, like Aboriginal oral histories, put the figures at much, much higher than that, as indeed do accounts of the same massacres many years later by some of the perpetrators, many years later, when they think that there's no chance of um, being prosecuted or when other perpetrators have died. Um, there's there's a, quite a lot of references that we find 20, 30, 40 years after the, the event itself. So these are, these are confessions which, you know, in terms of historical evidence, you just wouldn't doubt those. Oh, no. And in, in some cases, they're, they're almost corroboration of what, what we have because we know there are certain people, certain police officers and certain pastoralists whose names appear again and again and again. Focusing on Coniston, this is the last known officially sanctioned massacre of Aboriginal people in Australia. How many others, official and unofficial, do we know of just in the Northern Territory? is a tricky question. I think the answer to that is we don't know, and we may never know. Sorry, are we talking dozens, hundreds, more? Oh, I'm, I'm working from um, a list of massacres that I think it runs to about 160. Um, now, some of those don't make the cut for the map because there's no strong evidence of that, that cusp figure of six. But we're talking, yeah, hundreds. We're probably talking many hundreds, if not thousands, of victims. Oh, indeed. Yes, yes. We often think of Aboriginal massacres as having happened in the sort of, you know, frontier wars of the late 1700s, the early to mid-1800s. Coniston happened in 1928. I mean, this was when Australians were going to the movies. We were cheering on our aviators. You know, Don Bradman was rising through the ranks as a cricketer. This is in living memory. How were killings like that viewed at the time? I'm talking morally, legally and economically. Oh, well, I suppose that really depends on who you ask. Um, this, this one is probably the best known in the NT because it was the most recent and it attracted a lot of media coverage. Um, and there was significant, um, I suppose, appalled reaction from certain quarters, whereas... Um, the earlier ones in the NT were subject to uh, very few people knew about them. The NT was sparsely populated. The media didn't cover them because there was hardly any media. There were very few police on the ground. So people could really do what they wanted to do out in the bush uh, without being caught or brought to account for it. How did white police and pastoralists view the killing of Aboriginal people morally at the time and legally, I guess? Oh, necessary. Because... And, and I'm not kidding when I say that. It, it, was, uh, it was very cold-blooded, notwithstanding that the law was very clear um, under the terms of South Australia's colonial declaration. Um, no one was supposed to take any land from Aboriginal people without negotiating for it or harming anyone so that was technically what was supposed to happen but 
the um, police used, and pastoralists, but the police used euphemisms for punitive reprisal expeditions, such as dispersal. So when there, when there was an order that went out to disperse the natives, it meant kill them. It didn't mean disperse at all. And this was economic in the sense that they wanted to take the land, have no competition, take control of the waterholes for the stock? It was all about land, all about land. Um, and as you can imagine, if you um, people will probably know that the Northern Territory has two seasons, um, a wet season and a dry season, or in the case of Central Australia, a summer and a winter. Towards the end of the dry season winter, water holes are drying up and water is a prize. The, the early massacres were about one of two things, women or water, because these men who were coming through and it all started with um, up through the centre, it started with construction of the Overland Telegraph Line, which is essentially the Stuart Highway. You can follow the dots on the map and it's basically the Stuart Highway from the centre up to the top end. And then when there was the spread of to pastoralism, that's when you can see the dots on the map going to places like Arnhem Land, the VRD region towards the border with WA and quite a few of those massacres spilled over that border and into the Kimberley. So what you're saying in terms of the dots on the map, the massacre dots initially followed the telegraph line and then they just followed the spread, the spread of pastoralism? Yep, basically. If, if you um, run it on a timeline and there is a time slider on the map, yes, you can see that the earlier ones were the construction of the Overland Telegraph Line and then with the pastoral expansion that followed that, that's when the massacres went sort of, what we, as we would say now, off the track and into the bush. Coniston was different in the sense that there was actually media coverage and there was an inquest. How were events of the massacres reconstructed and framed at the time for the inquiry? Very poorly um, and not very objectively. For example, no Aboriginal witnesses were called. Um, I beg your pardon, one Aboriginal witness was called. That was an Aboriginal tracker named Paddy. So he was with the police. So the official death toll admitted by, by Murray was 31. Historians now put that closer to maybe 170. What leads yeah. to that conclusion? Uh, well, it wasn't. Coniston was not one massacre. It was a series, a rolling series of massacres, and it took place in, as, as far as I know, Walpuri people will tell you that there are more um, locations than this, but my research so far has indicated that, uh, that Brooks's Soak, which is where Brooks was killed, which is, was on Coniston Station, Mission Creek, Boomerang Waterhole, Napperby Station, Tomahawk Waterhole, Circle Well, Tipinpa, Patalier Creek, Dingo Waterhole, Hanson River, Cockatoo Spring and Six Mile Soak. And, and we're talking between August and October 1928. So if anyone thinks that an entire police party and other parties were out for two or three months and shot 31 people, 
I'd be telling you to think again. Then there's also people who fled into the desert at the height of the drought in terror and probably died from that as well, yes? Yes, indeed. Also, fleeing onto other Aboriginal land, so out of their territory and onto someone else's territory, is not terribly good form. Mm. Um, So there could have been um, conflicts and casualties arising from that. Uh, but but Coniston itself and, and these various sites remain extremely at what um, Walpuri and Aboriginal people generally call sorry places. They won't go there. They will not go there to this day. So Coniston echoes down for the Indigenous people through oral history and, and living memory. Why was it forgotten for so long by white Australia? Well, I think all the massacres, perhaps with the exception of uh, Coniston and Mile Creek, perhaps, are not known in Australian history and, and in, in the Australian psyche. It's very unpleasant history, and I think people don't want to know about it and don't want to acknowledge it. But it has to be done because um, if, you know, not all history is pretty, and this, this aspect of our history most certainly isn't pretty, but it happened. There's no question that it happened. George Murray's descendants were part of the 90th anniversary commemorations of Coniston, and they'd come to terms with what their ancestor did without feeling shame, but in a spirit of reconciliation and simple recognition. What do you think that can teach us about how we as white Australians learn about these massacres and deal with that knowledge. Yes, they did, and congratulations to them for that. And it's interesting, Michael, because we are finding, our our research team is finding that this is a bit of a common theme with descendants of perpetrators who are contacting our research people in each state and saying, please, I want to know more. This was my relative and... um, as for Murray's descendants wanting to know more wanting to acknowledge it and wanting to meet with uh, the Aboriginal people concerned in a spirit of reconciliation and it's a really great first move that is tends to be welcomed by Aboriginal people it's just a good it's a baby step but it's very interesting that this younger generation is feeling that way and, and saying, no, this is just not right. What would you say to people who say, it's in the past, let's just move on? If we properly acknowledge the past, we would be able to move on. But when we ignore what happened, you can't move on because it's a false history. And that's, that's just not a sign of a mature society. Many thanks to Dr Robin Smith, and if you want to see the Newcastle Massacre Map Project, go to https colon double forward slash c21ch.newcastle.edu.au forward slash colonial massacres forward slash. 
I'm Michael Adams and you've been listening to Australia on This Day. Make sure you're subscribed to get every episode as soon as it's released. If you've enjoyed the show, I'd love it if you could leave a review and rating at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're after more tales from our fascinating history, check out my other show, Forgotten Australia. This podcast was produced in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. Thanks for listening and catch you tomorrow. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.